Yeah, we're going to talk about how everybody gets to play today. It's uh, kind of one of the our vineyard distinctives. I don't think it's distinctive from all the churches in the world, but it's a saying that John Wimber coined years and years and years ago. Uh, sounds like in a previous century. Well, I guess it was a previous century, wasn't it? <laughs> Since John, John died in 96, that was a previous century. Uh, but it surprised him to discover that uh, God was uh, way more generous than he imagined and that God wanted to use people and involve people in the work of the kingdom in a way that, uh, you know, he just he couldn't imagine that that's the way it really worked. And this phrase, everybody gets to play, it just simply means that everybody who believes in Jesus can experience the life of Jesus, that his life can actually be formed in us and, and then expressed through us, and that his ministry, you know, what you see him doing in the Gospels is meant to continue. Now, that's a, that's a radical idea to a lot of people, and, and the truth is most people look at that and go, I don't know if I can buy that because I don't really see that uh, demonstrated much. Uh, in vineyard circles, we have lots of stories. We have, we have lots of stories here in our church of, of God doing this, but I, I remember reading this story about in church, uh, and we're going to have a little ministry time after we finish the talk here, and, and uh, we'll, we'll show you. Uh, a woman uh, asked for prayer, and she had a large lump in her breast, and, and she you know, knew it was cancerous, and, and she's you know, in that that uh, place you get in, it's, it's very alarming and uh, all kinds of things are kicking into gear. And so some people came to pray for her and uh, uh, a lady came with her uh, four-year-old uh, little girl. And the little girl just, they, for some reason, they felt led to let this little girl pray for the woman's cancer. And she just prayed and said, Jesus healed the cancer. And God touched this woman, and she was going, she was scheduled for a checkup that week. She went back, and, the, and she felt the lump was gone. But she went in, and the lump was gone. So this little four-year-old girl, it was an example that everybody gets to play. Uh, and you can go through the Gospels and see that Jesus used people. He used all of us. Uh, the, the, the miracle where Jesus fed thousands of people. He asked his disciples, who were supposed to be the people he was training to kind of, you know, take on the ministry, take over the family business, so to speak. And he said to them, uh, hey, let's feed, I want you to feed all these people, because the disciples said, they're all hungry. You know, they've been out here sort of in the uh, backwoods with us for a while, and uh, we don't have any food. And, 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 uh, he, and he says, you give them something to eat. And they go, we don't have enough food for all these people. And, he, and uh, a little boy came forward with a few loaves of bread and some fish, and he gave it to Jesus, and Jesus multiplied it. And that little boy was willing to be part of what God wanted to do, and everybody got to play. And it's hard to read the Bible and not see, if you really look closely at it, and you don't look at it with sort of religious eyes, that God picks the most unlikely people to, to be part of what he's doing. And since most people tend to think they're unlikely, we should be able to make the connection that when we see God using an unlikely person and we feel like unlikely people, that should apply to us, but it, it oftentimes doesn't. So what I wanna, I've done today is I'm, I've picked out one text from one of the letters in the New Testament uh, from the apostles written to the church where, and, and there is an, a, a book in the Bible literally, or a place in the New Testament where this idea that everybody gets to play isn't found. You can't go through a single book of the Bible and not find this idea. This is not uh, something that we made up here in the 20th century, 21st century. I want you to, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 4. And what we're going to see and my point to you today is just real simple. Everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to experience 
the life of Jesus and gets to participate in the ministry of Jesus. That's what that means. Everybody gets to play. But what I want to show you today in this passage is why everybody gets to play, why some people don't get to play. Now, that may sound confusing. I'll explain. And what it looks like when everybody plays. So we're going to, this passage we're going to read, we're going to talk about how, why everybody gets to play, why some people don't get to play, and what it looks like when we all play. Starting at verse 4, it says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, and he's going to quote Isaiah 28, See, I lay in Zion a chosen, uh, excuse me, uh, he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, in other words, to you who believe in Jesus, this precious stone, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we believe that your word teaches us that we all get to play, that we all get to experience the life of Jesus and continue the ministry of Jesus, your son. Uh, Father, take these words and make them alive for us today and just bring us more deeply into the truth that we get to play. Amen. So every, why does everybody get to play? Well, this, this little text says something, and he's saying it to those first century followers of Jesus, like we're the 21st century followers of Jesus, and they had a hard time believing that they got to play. They struggled believing that God would really make them these special people through whom he would work, that they could experience Jesus in their lives. And so Peter gives them a basis for them to believe that, and then that the belief is going to lead to a way of life. Okay, that's the way it works. Uh, a lot of times we believe things that are just wrong, and that, that produces a certain way of life. If we believe things that are true and we commit our lives to them, then that's going to lead to another way of life, a different way of life, right? So he says that... Uh, when you came to Jesus, and, and a lot of times when we come to Christ, we don't realize all the things that are starting to happen in our lives. But when you really come to Christ, it says that, God, that what he told them is God starts doing something. As you come to Jesus, you are being built. Something starts happening when you come to Jesus that's beyond your capacity to affect. And so he's saying, Jesus changed you. Now, he used language there that it's real simple uh, to understand, but it, you know, you might read it and just it's sort of you, you, you don't recognize the relevance of it, but he says to them, okay, you guys, when you came to Jesus, Jesus made you like the, the temples of worship that you saw all around the world. So in the ancient world, every city and most of these letters are written to people in large cities. The followers of Jesus were largely in cities because that's where in the early, as the church was spread, the apostles would go to large centers, population centers, and they'd share the gospel. Then it would spread from there. Well, there in these cities, they would see temples to different gods, Aphrodite, uh, you name it, this God, that God, Zeus. And uh, uh, basically, the religious landscape was very simple. 
God had an address. The God that you worship had an address. You'd go to that temple, and that was a place where heaven and earth intersected. And the God that you wanted to worship would be found there. And that house of worship would have priests in it and priestesses who would go through rituals and teach you things. And through the administration of those priests, you would experience God's, you know, the, 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 the blessing of the gods that you were worshiping. And you came and offered sacrifices there. So you would bring, you know, something to sacrifice, an animal or some money or food or all kinds of things. So the, the, the religious landscape everywhere was the same. It's still like that all over the world. You can, go to, uh, you can go to temples here in Columbus. You can go to temples in different places. And the temple is God's address. It's where the God that you worship is found. And there's representatives in there, and they're special people. They have a, a, a special kind of qualification that you don't have. They represent the God to you. They speak to you on behalf of the God, and they go to the God on your behalf. So they're sort of, they have this mediation, mediatorial sort of role. And then you go there and offer sacrifices, and that's where it happens. Well, what Peter's saying here was... Jesus turned the religious world upside down. Uh, every once in a while, and I, it seems like more and more frequently, uh, people will invent, it's like this. Uh, business operates a certain way, and then someone develops a new idea, a new way of doing business. And then it, it, it changes everything. Uh, Years ago, my parents were involved in, uh, they had a chain of jewelry stores, and they sold uh, jewelry, and they sold watches. And uh, for my whole life, up to a certain point, watches were these little mechanical devices. They had these very intricate little mechanisms, and you'd wind them up, and, uh, and the hand would work, and it would tell time. And everyone, you know, wore a mechanical watch. And then one day, yeah, someone discovered how to make uh, Time, how, to, how to tell time through uh, elect electronic means. And so instead of these delicate little uh, mechanisms that you wore on your hand, there was these little digital watches. Well, the whole Swiss economy was turned upside down when that happened. Now, the Swiss were involved in the development of that, but they didn't think that it could ever replace what they were doing because what they had done for years was so amazing and wonderful it was. So they sold the, the uh, idea to somebody else, and that, that, those other companies almost put the Swiss people completely out of business. Now, it's become cool if you watch uh, entertainers and things to have these big mechanical watches again, right? You notice that? that it's hip to wear these big mechanical watches. So people are doing it again. And there's always been a market, but the market for watches went from 99% Swiss to like 8%. Now it's, you know, they've grabbed a little more. But when Jesus came along, Jesus turned the religious world upside down because the temple, which was the intersection of heaven and earth and his address in, in the world, went from all these stone buildings all over the place to Jesus, that Jesus was the temple. He was where you found God. And all the priests and special representatives got replaced by Jesus as the one high priest between man and God. And the sacrifices that everybody offered to try to gain the favor of the gods and of God, Jesus offered himself as the one sacrifice once and for all. And so suddenly all the religious a trade that went on in the world changed. The, the market shifted. I mean, you, you have to... You have to you, if you had been a priest and you made your living, when the gospel came to town, 
It, would be, it could be pretty upsetting. It could be really, really unnerving. But everybody was used to the way of working that way. It worked that way. There were special people in a special place, and they did these special things there. And, and you kind of watched it all happen. Do you get that? I mean, can you see that? Does that sound familiar at all? Like church can still be like that? Do you see it? There's special people up here who wear special clothes. Well, I guess these aren't that special. <laughs> oh, maybe the Adidas are, but we do these special things up here, and you watch, and you get some benefit from it, and you come to a special place. Well, this place isn't that special for sure. <laughs> it, you, you, you see that? Jesus changed that system 2,000 years ago. It is, it's obsolete. It's been replaced by something better and perfect. But a lot of times we are, are drawn in to the perpetuation of that system that doesn't work. Those things were all temporary to point to something that was better. Something that brought everyone into it. And so Peter says, as you come to him, as you believed in Jesus, the living stone. So he's saying Jesus had lots of roles, but one of his roles and one of his offices was he was the stone, the cornerstone. Now, a lot of us don't know that much about ancient building techniques, but what they would do in the ancient world was they didn't have metal. They didn't have a lot of the building materials that we use today. Uh, or if they had them, they were in different forms, rougher forms. They weren't so precise and mass-produced. And so they made everything on site, essentially. And most of the buildings were made out of stone. And there would be wood in them and some other materials, but predominantly it was stone. And you can go to many parts of the world if you've ever traveled, and you can see stone temples that are millennia old. They're thousands of years old. And they're, because they're made out of these, these materials that don't deteriorate easily. And so when you were going to build a big, important building, you would first create a cornerstone. Now, you know, when you go to churches, if you've gone into some parts of Columbus that are there are older parts of Columbus where there's uh, stone churches. How many of you have seen some of the stone churches or cathedrals, right? Have you ever seen the stones that are, where they have little dedication on them? And sometimes people think that's the cornerstone, right? It's not. Uh, that's just another stone that they've uh, put something meaningful on it to designate when the building was dedicated or built or, you know, different facets of information that were important to those people at that time. But the cornerstone in the ancient world was the most important part of a building because it was the stone that was cut to these very precise dimensions that the rest of the building was built off of those dimensions. And so everything was, was cut, and, and they did everything by hand back then. This, the, the, the angles had to be precise, and they had to be very flat. And these were not small stones. Literally, I've, I've seen in archaeological documents and pictures uh, stones that were as big as that whole back wall, a cornerstone of a building that was as big as that whole back wall. Imagine that. Hundreds of tons, 40 feet high, 60 feet deep, 100-something feet long. That was the cornerstone of one building. I saw pictures of people standing by the cornerstone, and it was just it just towered over them. And that cornerstone was the most important part of the building because it, everything rested on it. It was what set the shape, and everything about the building was defined by that cornerstone. And so Jesus is, in Peter's little talk here, he's saying Jesus is the cornerstone for this new temple. And, but he's not like an inert object. He's alive. He's the living stone. But he's huge. And when they built these cornerstones, the builders went and chose the cornerstone because the cornerstone was really important. And so it had to be a stone that didn't have flaws in it, 
and would handle the pressure and, you know, all the tests that came its way that the building would experience. And so this stone was really, really important. And these, the, the, the people who built the buildings would go out and they knew how to pick the right cornerstone. So what Peter's saying is God picked a cornerstone for a new people in the world. Because everybody that the gospel's preached to have some identification with some people. You know, I'm American. Uh, my last name's Lieb. I'm a Lieb. I'm Irish. I'm not Irish. I'm, I'm Swiss German, American Indian. It's weird. That's a weird, you know, mixture there. Uh, we all have some, you know, I'm Texan, which is probably more important to me than anything else. <laughs> I grew up in Texas, a very unique place. Uh, we all have these identifications we, and, and loyalties and things that, that have shaped us and that are important to us. Well, when the gospel comes along... As, as good as all those, as important as all those relationships were, and they did, they, they did give us things. They also gave us, they gave us good things and they gave us bad things. And we're defined by those relationships. And so, and the thing is, we can't, you, you can take the boy out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the boy. You can take the person out of Ireland, but you can't take the, per, the Irish out of the person. I mean, do you get it? There, there are things about us that we're stuck with. And some of those things are not good. Some of those things we're, we're trying with all of our heart to overcome. Well, Jesus came along, and he came into the world, and he became human, lived like us, but he was God in the flesh. And the, the message of the gospel says when we believe in him, he becomes a cornerstone for a whole new people in the world. A people who don't have to be trapped in the life that they were living and the legacy that they inherited in the circumstances of their life. That if they call out to God through Jesus, that he will change them and take them out of the building they're in and he will build them on him. And the, the gift that he will give them is... We become the temple of God. We become God's address. We're a spiritual house. Now, when, when, when you build something important, you pick the best materials. And most of us know we would look at ourselves and say, I'm not, I'm not sure why God would pick me to be part of something that important or that prestigious that his presence would be in, right? We pick really durable, good, expensive materials for things that, that are going to be honored. And what could be more honored than God's house? Nothing. But God chooses us. And even if we feel disqualified, which we are, God says, because you're built on Jesus, you're qualified because of Jesus' qualification. What you need, what makes you presentable to me, is what's in him. And so when you build your life on him, you're presentable to me, and I will dwell among you. My presence will be there in the world. And then not only that, because then he shifts the metaphor a little bit, and he says, you're not just the temple, you're also the priest's in the temple, that you will represent me. You will be, he uses two adjectives to describe the priesthood in this passage. One, he says, you'll be holy, which, again, we're not holy in ourselves, but because of Jesus, we become holy. He makes us different. As we relate to him, as we base our life on him, as we pursue him and believe in him, he makes us holy by nature of his holiness. And he says we're a royal priesthood, a holy royal priesthood. And royal means kingly. It, it, it speaks to authority. That in the world, God says wherever two or three of you are, or a whole community is, my presence is going to be found there, and you are going to be the priests 
that administer my presence and the benefits and how to know me and how to experience me, that, that that's how people are going to really be able to figure out what's going on that they experience. They're going to be able to talk to you, and you're going to help them to know that. Remember how we read last week? We were talking about the Holy Spirit, and, and John, uh, at the end of John, we were talking about why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Real simple thing. Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the breath of God. Receive the life of God. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He's talking about the proclamation of the gospel and that we have a role in people experiencing, really experiencing their sins being forgiven. You do. You do. It, the church is like this. I, I'm standing up on this short little stage just for convenience sake. This is the church. The church is all on the same level. We're all pastors and priests. I may have a function as a pastor, and others have a function as a pastor or leaders, but on its most fundamental level, we are the temple of God. We are a royal priesthood, and the holy sacrifices that he's talking about here is the life of Jesus that we live out and the ministry of Jesus that we demonstrate. Because we're, as Paul said in, in Romans, he said, we offer our bodies to God as living sacrifices. And those living sacrifices are expressed through how we relate to other people, through the love that we show to people, the love of Christ. And we tend to think, see, this obsolete model of faith just keeps being revived and dragged back into the people of God. And some of it is because you guys don't want to be who God called you to be, and you'd rather pay some people to do that. I don't mean you necessarily, but I mean the church likes its superstars. The church likes its skilled experts. But that's never Jesus' vision. Because what happens as soon as people see those experts' flaws or they blow it, it just crushes everybody's faith, doesn't it? Right? Hasn't it happened? You know, I've known lots of people. I've, I've been a pastor a long time. I've been involved in the restoration of a lot of fallen pastoral leaders, some here in the city. And it blows people's faith up when their heroes are shown to be real people just like them. It does. And part of it is this old system where we put people on pedestals because we like to have our heroes. And it doesn't mean we're not supposed to have people who are examples to us. That's what leadership is, to be an example. But we're supposed to be servants, not experts. We're supposed to be real. Well, we, want, we love to build those people up, and, it, and there's all kinds of bad things that come out of it. And leaders, all the leaders I know in the vineyard are constantly trying to say, we want to stand on the same level with you guys. Because God has a spiritual house made of living stones. We're all a spiritual priesthood. We're supposed to be equipping you and helping you to learn how to do that, not trying to, to, to get money out of you so you can watch us do it. Because that stops the vision and plan of God from moving forward. What made the church so powerful was that they, bought, they, they experienced that God was doing it and they embraced it. Now, some of them were different than us in the sense that a lot of the church was from the lowest classes in the ancient world. Now, there were people who were also the rich and the important the powerful, too, but largely, the church was lower of, of lower classes of people and slaves. And the, the, the gospel's attraction was that God would take the ordinary and use it for something that was precious. 
And, and it, it would be honored beyond its ability to ever achieve. I mean, you can't read, like I said in my introduction, you can't read the Bible and not see that God picks unlikely people to be his heroes. To teach us the lesson that that's, we're all supposed to be heroes. Because there's only one hero, Jesus, the cornerstone, and we're built on him. Now, why don't some people, if, if, if John, you said there, there are three points you're going to try to make out of everybody gets to play. One, why everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play because of Jesus. Because what Jesus, who he was and what he did is so amazing and so awesome and so life-changing that if you put your trust in him, your life begins to change. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you and starts doing this process of, of making you more like Christ. But then why, people often ask me, I get this asked every week, not in exactly these words, but why does it seem like some people don't get to play? If getting to play is being like Jesus and doing the ministry of Jesus, why does it seem like so hard to be like Jesus and do the ministry of Jesus? Well, Peter says here that God lays this stone in Zion. It's a chosen and precious cornerstone and he makes these amazing promises. But if you read the New Testament carefully, a lot of people rejected Jesus because he didn't fit their expectation of who the Messiah was. Or he wanted something of them. Because when, when you come to Jesus, he says he's Lord. And we all live like we're Lord. And now you may say, oh, John, I don't, I don't live like I'm Lord. Well, I'll tell you this. You drive like you're Lord. <laughs> but I often make this point. I surprise myself sometimes how irritated I get that everybody around me isn't making it more convenient me, for me to get to A to B. Right? And I'm mad that they don't drive just like me because I'm the, I'm the, you know, Example, perfect example of drivers for all time. We, we all think like that. No, I got a, someone's challenging me back there. <laughs> he thinks that way too, see? We all think we're Lord. But there's only one Lord. And when you come to him, that, he challenges that. But he, Jesus doesn't meet the world's ideas of how we're supposed to live. But he is the perfect human. He was God and human, flesh and blood. And he allows us to enter the mess of humanity and into this new humanity through what he did on the cross. It's a finished work that we put our trust in Jesus and his death on the cross for us. We're reconciled to God and the Spirit comes in us. We start this journey. As you come to him, you are being built. And God says, I'm going to finish the work I start in you when you say yes to Jesus. And you see he's the Lord and you're not. And you do what maybe other people didn't do. They didn't say yes, you did. God says, I promise I'm going to finish what I started in you. But it's going to be something that's not... It's not in sync with the world around you. The life of Jesus. You can't read how Jesus lived and not see that his life, the way that Jesus ha handled money and power and sex, was radically out of step, because God's will is radically out of step with how the world around us handles money, power, and sex. And the, the, the sacrifices that we express for God are related the lifestyle we live largely on how we handle money and power and sex. And Jesus had a model of, of his life. He embodied how to handle money and possessions and things and how to handle power and influence and, and work and how to handle sex. Jesus modeled those, and he taught the same thing that the prophets had taught. And it was completely out of step with the world around him. I, I sat with someone this week uh, who 
just got a PhD from Ohio State, and we were talking about Jesus' radical call to live sexually faithful in a world that's totally out of control sexually. And they were just saying, it's, it's challenging, it's hard, it's hard for everybody. Didn't, there isn't anybody that, that doesn't find Jesus' will, what he taught about how sex is supposed to work, challenging. Nobody finds it easy. You may think, oh, if I just decide I'm not going to, I'm going to be single, I'm not going to have a problem <laughs> with that area. Yeah, right. That's what some Catholic priests thought. And they found, it comes with me. I'm a sexual being. I have desires and urges, and, and they, they do not always line up with God's will. And so God says, you need to surrender that part of your life to me. You need to surrender your money to me and power to me. So those are all challenging things, aren't they? Well, he says here, the stone the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. We f- fancy ourselves as good people. But the goodness, the definition, the embodiment of goodness came on the scene, and how we respond to him defines if we're really good or not. Do we really want goodness, or are we just, we want people to think we want goodness, or we want goodness on our terms? But Jesus came along and said, the way you respond to me shows what you really think about what's good. And so no matter what you say or think, or anybody says or thinks, Jesus is the measure of goodness. And so he becomes this stumbling block that is this line in the sand that God drew. It's a line of love. The line in the sand that God drew in the world in his son was a line of love. And he he said, we have to admit that we don't like that expression in Jesus. We want it on our own terms. Somewhere in your life, it may take you a while to see, because some of us were raised around you know, religious ideas, and we tend to think, I'm a pretty moral person. But somewhere deep inside, you're not. And when it gets exposed, then you see, I really don't want what God wants. I'm really not someone that wants to please God. I'm, I'm the kind of person Jesus died for. I'm the kind of person that rejects Jesus. Despite all the veneer, the moral veneer of my life, deep down inside, I want what I want. And Jesus said when he came along, he would cause people to stumble. And he's not trying to aggravate people, right? He he wasn't trying to be fingernails on the blackboard, but morally, that's what Jesus is. He's the fingernails on the blackboard of our heart. And we think that sounds annoying. It's really beautiful. It's really amazing and wise and good and life-giving and delightful. But because we're so fallen, this is sometimes we don't have a grasp on how sinful and twisted we are at the deepest level of our being. Because we can be so offended and so resistant to beautiful things that, that express God's will. And it's different. You know, a lot of us, it's the same, but we all have our little idiosyncratic unrighteousness. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, it's the, it's the fingernails of God on the blackboard of our heart. And it, we have to come to terms with we need Jesus. We need him to be the cornerstone of our lives. We have to come to terms with what God has for us is not what we are. And the only way we can get there is through Jesus. Let me put it another way. In the temple, in the Jewish temple, there there was a place where God dwelt among the Jewish people. But the temple had like an outer court, like there was a fence around it. Then you walked into that fence, and there there was a big barbecue pit and a big bird feeder, essentially. Uh, and you take your sacrifices, 
your animal that you wanted to sacrifice uh, to, as an atonement for your sins. You give it to the priest. They would kill it. They'd throw it on the barbecue pit. Then the priest would go and wash his hands because they'd have blood all over them in the laver, in the bird feeder. Then they would go into the building for you. And they would go through other, and other, I'm sorry, other priests would be in there going through other exercises. And all these exercises were getting you, moving you from where you were in the sinful world increasingly towards the presence of God. And each of the prescribed rituals that they went through addressed some of the need we have as people. But in this small room, what they called the Holy of Holies, there was a, a veil that was there. And once a year, the priest would take a, a, an unblemished lamb for the sins of the people. They would kill it, and they'd take the blood of the lamb, and they would go into that room, and they'd tie a rope on the priest's leg. Because the priest would have, like imagine, you, I go into the room, I've got the blood, and there was a, a, a piece of furniture there, I don't want to explain it, that represented God and his covenant. And I would take the blood, and I would pour it on this thing called the ark, the mercy seat. And it would, it would atone for all the sins of the people so that the people could experience God's presence among them because they kept acknowledging, God, we don't deserve you know, for you to bless us. But we think of the veil in a certain way. Let me tell you what the veil did. The veil protected us from being consumed by God. God was in the holy place. The veil protected us from dying. Wherever God is, he's so holy and so perfect. Our sin is so utterly unlike him that it would consume us to be in his presence. The veil is there to protect us. People think they're hungry for God. C.S. Lewis used to say, the idea that you're hungry for God or that you're seeking after God is like a mouse saying, here, kitty, kitty. <laughs> we don't realize we need to change. And the only way we can change is through what Jesus did for us. What he did changes us in a way that we can actually have a relationship with God and be compatible with God. But there's no other way we can have it except through what he did. And Jesus didn't just whitewash our sins. There's so, there's so many layers to what Jesus did for us. I don't have time to explore them all. But we are, are objects of the mercy of God through Jesus. And some people don't, don't get to play because they don't want Jesus. They want church. They want morality. But they don't want embodied holiness in Christ. They want outward rules and stuff because sometimes we will, we're willing to go through the rules and keep some of them so that we can feel good for different reasons, for different really selfish reasons. But what we're supposed to be doing is saying, God, kill me. Kill the worst in me. Kill all the worst I learned from other people. Kill the worst in me that I taught other people, that I inherited. Kill the worst that's in the world around me that somehow I've absorbed and make me more like you and do it through Jesus. And if you've never thought that way, I don't know if you've ever been saved. Because <laughs> at some point you have to come to terms with God's holy and we're not. And Jesus died because we're not. And he died so that we could become holy. Holy, royal priests. That doesn't mean sinless perfection. It just means people who go, I want to be different. God, I'm tired of being mean to my wife and neglecting my kids, and not being a faithful friend, and ripping my bosses off, and, you know, all the stuff that we do that's so destructive, and all the things that people do to us that we often fail to see we're doing to them. We're just so annoyed by all that they do to us. We have to have this collective cry to God, God, save us from ourselves. And Jesus did that. And so when we cry out to him and we build our lives on that cornerstone, God takes us and, and he takes us like a stone and he starts chipping away at the stone. 
And he starts fitting these stones together. And, he, and, it, and it's the, the, the grammar here implies that this is a process that goes on for the rest of your life. That when you come to Jesus, it isn't like, whoop, 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 you just, you fit, that's it. No, it's like he puts you in the wall alongside all these other people, and he's working on all of us at the same time. And the dust is flying, and chunks are flying. And it's, that's, that's called church. That's called marriage. That's called family. It's called work. Because God's doing that shaving and fitting process in our lives 24-7. But he's especially doing it in our relationships in the body. And so sometimes we, what, what we don't realize is what we need to pursue, the only way that we, if, if we want Jesus, it isn't like you started saying yes to Jesus once in your life and you cruise from then on. Getting to play means that you need to pursue intimacy with Jesus. That when, when you pursue intimacy with Jesus, you begin to experience the power of his life and then you begin to become obedient and fruitful. And it's not the other way around. You become obedient and fruitful and then you get power and then you get intimacy. The intimacy with him is how you get the life from him and the power from him and the love from him and the patience from him and the kindness and the courage and the integrity and the generosity and the holiness. It all comes from him. So pursuing intimacy with him is the secret. That's how this whole thing works. So some people don't get to play because they're not pursuing intimacy with Jesus. It's not because anybody who gets to play is so special. It's because Jesus makes us special. And the more we pursue him, the more how special he is gets expressed through us and among us. Okay? So what does it look like when everybody plays? It looks like Jesus. It's that simple. Uh, Dr. Gordon Fee, he's a famous New Testament scholar. He said, God isn't fitting individuals for heaven. He's creating a people who, by the power of the Spirit, live out the life of Jesus, the life of God himself, before the whole world in this present evil age. So, there's, you know, there's really only one place in the New Testament where God calls you individually the temple of the Holy Spirit, that every other time it talks about it, it's talking about us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we've completely inverted that, and we interpret all of God's word and all the promises to me. And is that true? Yeah. But it's primarily to us. Us. And if we don't allow God to fit us together, we commit the folly of thinking that one person can express the magnitude of God by themselves. And when you think about it, that's just a silly idea. But it's not actually the idea that for most of us is the guiding principle of our lives. That's how we interpret the Bible. We think it's me and God. And a lot of times, the world doesn't see what God's like because we're not willing to be fitted together. We're not willing to really commit our lives together, to be a people together. Even though God is working, when we come to Jesus, he's working to fit us together. And I'll tell you something. If this wall right here, even though it's a, a wooden frame wall, if you started taking members out of that wall, support members, structural members of that wall. It, it would not be what it is now. And the temple, the spiritual house, when you complain about the church, not just our church, but the church, you're complaining about you. 
We are all the house. And God is fitting us together. And when you, when, when you refuse to be your part of that, your part is a living stone, and it's because it's, it's not convenient for you, or you have a gift of hospitality, and you don't want to be hospitable to Christians, to other Christians. Or you, God's given you a gift of earning a really good living where you make a lot more than you need to live. And he's given you that, not just for you, but to be generous with it. Or God's made you wise, or he's made you compassionate, or whatever gift that you have. That gift is meant to be expressed in a body because what God's trying to do is he's trying to tell people there's a new age that's broken into this world we live in. And a day is coming when it's going to completely replace this world and, and this bogus world system we live in. And we're being invited to be part of that. And the main witness, the main billboard of it is our life together. Not your witness and your witness and your witness, but our witness together. Jesus, Jesus even said that. He said, they're going to know you're my disciples. They're going to know that God sent me by your love for one another. Does love even have a meaning if it doesn't have a context? It doesn't. It, it's only meaningful in relation to other people. And that's what makes it so hard. Because other people just don't cooperate, do they? They make it hard to love. Other people are what make my life difficult. Well, vice versa, John. I'm what makes other people's lives difficult. But God says, that is the project we're in. He says, that is my project. You're part of it. And the privilege that we have is, if we buy into this, and we realize God wants to make us a spiritual house. He wants to dwell among us to degrees that we haven't even dreamed of. He wants us to represent him to degrees we've never thought of. He wants the spiritual sacrifices, the, our lifestyle, to demonstrate him in ways that we never imagined we could. But we have to embrace the idea that everybody gets to play and everybody is responsible to play. Now, uh, Mel's going to bring some of the kids in. Would somebody do me a favor and go tell Mel to bring the kids in? Uh, thank you, Adam. Uh, we're just going to close the service today and, and pray for people, but what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to ask a couple of you that need prayer to come up front, and then we're going to have the kids pray for you. And I want you to see that God will use kids. 